Hello everybody, this is the second sermon in our series Unveiling Hope, looking at the book of Revelation. This sermon is based on Revelation chapters 2 to 3 and is entitled The Christ Who Overcomes. I wonder if you have read any of the recent news stories about scammers trying to exploit people during this crisis. There have been phishing attacks where criminals have tried to trick people into revealing their personal details. There have been bogus cures put up for sale. There have been phony service people offering to check people's water tanks for the virus, all in an attempt to enter people's homes. There has been pension and insurance fraud. Google announced this week that they are blocking a 100 million hoax emails every single day, and about 20 million of those relate purely to the virus. But we all know from personal experience that still many of these emails are getting through. The news of these scams is enraging, sad and frightening all at the same time. Even the wisest of us have been duped on occasion. We all need to be on our guard. So how can we tell then if an email, letter or phone call is legitimate? Well, it can be very difficult. Some of these scammers are very good at what they do, but there are a few tips. If you receive an email, check that the name and the address match. Check for official logos and reference numbers. Listen to what they ask for. No bank will ever ask you to give your PIN number by phone, for example. But one of the clearest indications as you are reading a letter or an email is seeing how much they know about you personally. Have they used your full name or just sir or madam? Have they spelt your name and address correctly? Do they already know details about your life and investments that only a legitimate bank or insurance company could know? Or are they subtly asking you to reveal it to them? I'm not going to pretend that I am the expert. I have been caught out before myself. But we get the point. Real communication is both accurate and personal. When you see those two traits, you can begin to pay attention and cautiously trust what is being said. So why do I begin in this way? Well, I want us to see Revelation as a trustworthy letter. I want us to see it as both accurate and personal, coming as it does from the highest authority. Revelation was a letter written to be read as a complete whole to seven churches in Asia Minor towards the end of the first century. Those seven churches were roughly situated in a circle, so a messenger would have taken the letter round to each church in turn, travelling for a day on horseback or a few days on foot in between. But although each church would have had the whole letter read to them, each church also received its own specific introduction. You can see them clearly laid out in turn in chapters 2 and 3. These letters within a letter contain words of encouragement, challenge and reminder of both who God is and the promises he has made for the future. 
as we shall see, each of these letters are accurate and personal. They speak prophetic words that were powerfully relevant to the exact situation these churches found themselves in at the time. That's not to say these letters are irrelevant to us here on Isla 2,000 years later. They are still very relevant, especially where we see similarities to our own context. But to get the most from them, we need to understand something of what was going on at the time. Revelation is brilliantly written. There is nothing random in it. So by way of introduction, I want us to see how these seven letters are constructed, for they all have exactly the same structure. you remember from last week that Revelation was given by Jesus to John in a vision. So each letter is headed by the command given to John to write to the angel of each of the seven churches. In Greek, angel means messenger. So John is likely to be writing to the leader of each of these seven churches. Each letter then contains four parts. First, Jesus introduces himself to the church with an element from the great vision of him in chapter 1. The element chosen is very specific. Jesus speaks of the part of his character most relevant to the situation that church found themselves in and which the people there most needed to put their trust in. Second, Jesus states what he knows about the church and the town which the church was situated in. Third, comes a call from Jesus to pay attention. If the church being written to has been faithful, Jesus encourages them to persevere, particularly in the face of hardship and persecution. If the church has been unfaithful, Jesus calls them to repent in order to avoid judgment and disaster. Finally, a great promise is given. It's the promise of salvation to those who overcome. We're going to think much more about overcoming later. But what you need to know now is that these promises are not random either. They each pick up a piece of imagery from the final three chapters of the letter. These promises point to where everything is headed. Revelation finishes with heaven and earth joining together and believers gaining their inheritance of eternal life in God's presence. This salvation is promised to those churches who overcome, i.e. who respond to Jesus' call to either persevere through trial or repent from sin. Notice then that Revelation is real prophecy, just like what is found in the Old Testament. This promise of salvation is not guaranteed irrespective of how the churches behave. A positive response is very much required. The message being, if the churches persevere through the hardships they are facing, or if they repent from their sin and come back to Christ, eventually all will be well. They will overcome their present situation because Christ himself has overcome the world. This points again to why I have chosen for us to look at Revelation at this time. 
We too will overcome the trials of the coronavirus and all the death, illness and fear that it brings if we hold on to Christ. Everything I've said so far may sound a little theoretical and academic, so let's now root it in real life. I'm going to take one of the letters and show how it works in practice. I've chosen the first one, the letter to the church in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. In verse 1, John is given the command to write to the church leader. Then the four parts begin. First of all, Jesus presents himself to the church as the one who holds all church leaders in his hands and who walks among his churches. Remember in chapter 1, Jesus was pictured as holding the seven stars or seven angels in his hand and as walking between the seven lampstands. Why was this description particularly helpful for Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. It was vast. 250,000 people lived there at the time. The Christians were a very small minority among the population. So when Jesus presents himself as Lord of all the churches, he is showing that he's not inferior to the power of this mighty city. And although this small group of believers may feel almost anonymous among the masses, Jesus walks among them. He knows them. Nothing is hidden from him. So what does Jesus know about their situation? Well, this is the second part of the letter. In verses 2 to 3 and in verse 6, Jesus shows that he knows the believers have been working hard and are persevering through a difficult time. He knows they've set a high standard for holy living. He knows that they haven't been fooled by false teaching and have rightly rejected those who brought it. All in all, Jesus knows the Ephesians have been through difficult trials and they have not given up. Jesus is clearly delighted by this. These are great statements of encouragement. But Jesus does still have a call for them to pay attention. This third part of the letter is found in verses 4 and 5. After all the positives, there is one word of disappointment leading to a challenge and a warning. Over time, the Ephesians have forgotten their first love. They have fallen down a long way. We don't know exactly what this meant, but maybe the prosperity of the city was making them complacent. Maybe the magnitude of the city was cowering them. Maybe they'd stopped preaching the gospel and were just focused on protecting themselves in a difficult environment. It's not clear, but the Ephesians would certainly have known what Jesus meant when they received this letter. Their love of Christ, their love of each other, their love for non-Christians outside was wavering. They were slowly losing their determination. So Jesus calls them plainly to repent, to come back to him. He knows if they don't, eventually the church will cease to exist. It will die. Their lampstand will be taken away. It is a sober warning. But with it comes the alternative, the great promise of verse 7. 
If they overcome this trial, if they get back to their first love, salvation will be found. Here the specific image of eating from the tree of life is used. This points forward to Revelation 22 verse 2. At the end of the vision, the tree of life provides fruit for food and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. It is a sign of God's good creation being restored when Christ returns. Again, as I tried to hint with my opening illustration, this promise is accurate and personal to Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a great temple and cult to the goddess Artemis. Her symbol was a fruitful tree. Jesus is saying to the Ephesians then, if you come back to me, I promise you something far better than Artemis could give. I promise not just a fruitful tree, but the tree of life. I promise you forgiveness, healing and God's presence. Can you see? Everything about this letter is tailored from Jesus to Ephesus. Therefore, it can be completely trusted. It is not in any way a hoax. This must not be ignored or thrown away like junk mail. This needs to be listened to and responded to. Now, history tells us that the church in Ephesus did initially respond well to this letter. They came back to Christ and the church grew into an important Christian centre for hundreds of years to come. In 431, a great church council was held there. But the sad truth is that there is no church in Ephesus today, no believers whatsoever. Their lampstand did indeed end up being taken away. It is a reminder to us all that you cannot just obey Christ briefly and then return to apathy. You have to follow him long term and to the end. That is why these verses are still relevant to us today. We need to make sure Christ is the main love in our hearts and that we are loving others. I hope we can now see how these letters work. If you read the rest of Revelation 2 and 3, you will see that the exact pattern is repeated for the other six churches. Jesus speaks a targeted message to each one, showing that he is aware of their specific situation and giving them the advice they needed to follow. In Smyrna, they were facing poverty, affliction and persecution. They needed to hold on to Christ for dear life. In Pergamon, they'd fallen into false teaching and sexual immorality. They needed to repent. In Thyatira, they tolerated idolatry, putting unworthy things before God. They needed to return to Jesus before judgment came. In Sardis, they had fallen into apathy. They needed to wake up. Christ could return at any time. In Philadelphia, they were weak and low in number. They needed to endure patiently. In Laodicea, the church had become affluent and so lukewarm about their faith. They also needed to repent and put Christ above wealth in their hearts. All seven churches then faced difficulty, either thrust upon them or caused by them themselves as they gave in to worldly temptation. They faced the challenges of affluence and apathy, immorality and persecution. But despite the churches all being so different, 
God knew the truth of each and every situation. Jesus walked among his lampstands. Where people were in pain, he empathised with it and offered hope. Where people were in sin, he called them to account. The overall message of these chapters is clear. Living a life of faith in the world is a challenge. For the churches of the first century, it was about to get even harder. In verses 9 to 10 of chapter 2, we read that a tribulation is coming, and sure enough it did. A terrible wave of new persecution broke out when Emperor Domitian came to the Roman throne. But in this world of challenge and difficulty, every church, every believer faces a choice. You either compromise or you remain faithful. Jesus says in his vision, if you compromise, either by denying me to avoid persecution or by merging in with the spirit of the age to experience its affluence, you and your churches will die. But if you remain faithful, you and your churches will receive all the rewards of eternal life that you are soon to read about in this letter. That choice, compromise or faithfulness, and the resulting death or life lies before us today as we face this virus. Needless to say, we need to overcome by choosing to hold on to Christ with everything we have. These seven letters that make up chapters 2 and 3 are only the introduction to Revelation as a whole. The original hearers would not have understood the full meaning of overcoming yet. These brief letters serve to encourage them to read on and find out more. The rest of Revelation tells the story of Christ overcoming the powers of the world, the powers of persecution that make believers suffer, the powers of economic affluence that tempt believers off the right path. Revelation is very clear that that triumph was won at the cross and resurrection and it will be sealed for good when the risen Christ returns one day in the future. The important thing for us to hear today is this. In Revelation it is Jesus who does the fighting, not the believers. Jesus is the one who overcomes evil, suffering and death. Believers are just to hold on to him. That is why the call is clear. If you are suffering, persevere. If you are sinning, repent and come back. Because to overcome, we must hold on to the overcomer. Eternal life is only to be found in the Lord and Saviour Jesus, nowhere else. I wonder as you have listened to all this, what you have felt God saying to you. Just as Jesus knew all about the seven churches in Asia Minor, he knows all about us here on Isla. I wonder what his message might be to our situation. I wonder which of the seven churches was most like us. Was it little Philadelphia struggling away with low numbers? Was it Smyrna facing poverty and affliction like what is being caused by this virus? Or are we like Ephesus? not being as passionate about God as we should be or once were, have other concerns got in the way. I wonder. I'd love to know what you think.
I sensed as I was preparing this that God wants us to know that he knows all the challenges of the coronavirus and he's urging us to hold on to him, to hold on to faith. This is a call for us as a church and as individuals. But the great hope unveiled in this part of the letter is this. Christ understands our needs and Christ has overcome the world. If we hold on to him in repentance and faith, we will overcome too.